Hello, I'm Rachel Bevan from the Oncology Network, proud producers of the OJC Meets podcast series. What issues inspire young oncologists in Australia today? What are their greatest challenges and hopes for the future? Join Eva Segaloff as she finds out in the OJC Meets Yoga. Yoga is the Young Oncology Group of Australia, an organisation designed to support the transition from advanced trainee to consultant. Eva chats candidly with Jess Smith and Melita Sahid from the Yoga Group, covering everything from EMR management to work-life balance, COVID to public speaking, CV writing to diverse training pathways. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into the issues affecting young oncologists today. I hope you enjoy listening. You'll find the bios and Twitter handles in the notes on our website. For regular news and podcast updates, we invite healthcare professionals to join us at oncologynetwork.com.au. It's free and it's a fantastic way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Bevan and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. This is OJC Meets Yoga. Now, if you had visuals, you might think it's going to be of me in tight pants with my legs contorted over my ears. And I'm sure that vision is just uh, probably making you pull over the car and uh, go to the side of the road and <laughs> not feeling too well. But that's not what yoga is. So today, as an old fart in oncology, I am going to interview two young, vibrant women who have their whole oncology future ahead of them and find out what the younger generation of oncologists really think about, well, anything I want to ask them about. So it's a very warm welcome. Hey, Rachel, isn't this good? I'm speaking not to Craig and Hans, but to two other women. Welcome, Jess Smith. How are you, Jess? I'm great. Thank you so much for having us here. Fantastic. And Melita Zahid. Hello. Uh, nice to be here. Welcome, welcome. So let's just start with yoga because, as you know, we've got an international audience, six listeners in Belgium, I always say. But uh, for those who don't know, what is yoga? So yoga stands for the Young Oncologist Group of Australia. So it's really for those who have obtained fellowship and within their first five years and we help uh, really with that transitioning over to being a consultant and we help to look after the professional development, the things you didn't necessarily learn as a trainee, but you need as a consultant and really provide that extra network inside as well. Melita, this never existed when I was a trainee. I don't even think we had trainee associations then. We just did what we were told. So are you the you are the outgoing president, is that correct? I'm the outgoing deputy chair and Jess is the incoming chair for yoga. Fantastic. So tell us a little bit more about each of you. Jess? Yeah, so I am a medical oncologist. I work at um, Macquarie University with the clinical trials unit part-time whilst trying to do a PhD part-time doing teaching with Western Sydney University as well. 
So, you know, a bit of everything. And I've been involved with yoga for a few years now and really looking forward to what's coming up over the next 12 months or so, especially as we've got quite a few of the new fellows coming through who are really energetic and exciting to work with. Oh, that sounds better than us oldies. Melita, what's your story? Well, I'm a uh, medical oncologist as well, but and I guess this is something that a lot of the young oncologists probably experience and we might touch on later on in terms of the lack of sort of, I suppose, traditional opportunities that is around. And so I also do all trained in cancer genetics. And so now I work in cancer genetics as a cancer genetics specialist looking after, I guess, the cancer side of things and prevention and all that. And I'm also doing a PhD uh, because, you know, it gets you in the end. Uh, <laughs> I'm also doing a PhD in cancer genetics, looking at precision oncology uh, type things with Professor David Thomas uh, Garvin and the most programs. Fantastic. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the history of yoga. When was it formed and why was it formed? You've told us a bit about the need for it, but was there a particular impetus or a particular event that triggered its formation? Jess? So it was formed back in 2014 uh, by the current MOGA chair, actually, as well. It was one of the three founding members, so Dr. Demi Karikios, as well as uh, George A. Young and uh, Huey Lee Wong as well. And so they really tried to kind of create a bit of a network, for, so it's networking amongst young oncologists, as well as trying to raise awareness about some of the workforce issues as well that are unique to junior consultants. So you mean in a few years Demi's going to form the old oncologist, we don't want to retire society, and then he can get a special medal on your Demi? I am never going to say that about that at all. That's a pretty good innings, yeah. And I think one of the truthful things is even amongst the young oncologists, there's actually quite a few grey hairs that we don't really want to admit so much about. Mm, There's more of the old oncologists wanting to join yoga, I think, than the other way around. Melita, did you hear about yoga as a trainee and were you reassured that it was there for you? Yeah, I guess I took a little bit of time, extra time finishing training. Uh, you know, you work part-time, you have children, etc. So a lot of my colleagues, including Jess, uh, you know, uh, finished before me. And so I knew they were part of yoga and I wanted to be part of it. You know, they got to go back in the days before COVID, they got to go to these, you know, uh, events and uh, they would all go to this, you know, some exotic location and uh, have workshops. So I wanted to be part of it definitely when I was a trainee and it sort of, I guess, cracked up to be everything that I, you know, that I thought it would be, except now these days we don't get to travel. So what sort of things does yoga do? So yoga does a lot of, in terms of professional development side of things. So we've got a few different workshops that we hold throughout the year. 
Our main one is held in normally quarter two, and in that we go over things such as CV development, how to write a CV, how do you approach an interview, how do you go about that side of things, as well as different things that might be more topical as well. So in terms of diversity of pathways, different directions you can take in terms of non-traditional pathways as well. We also have a networking dinner at the um, MOGA ASM and we also do do a lot of networking as well. But we have also been part of developing a few different uh, offshoot programs as well that we've gone on to develop with MOGA. And this includes the Ecology Professionals Advancing Leadership, which was with our previous chair, Ben Kong, as well as Prunella Blinman, uh, was part of that. And we're also developing a global oncology component as well. Oh, fantastic. That's uh, something after my own heart. I did want to ask, Melita, are there sister organisations or brother organisations around the the world? Is this uh, an area catered for in other jurisdictions? Yeah, I think in Europe and in US there is a there are larger groups and especially with ESMO there is a larger focus on the young oncology group. In Australia I think we are a smaller group but you know we can still I guess access some of the resources that are overseas. But some of the, I guess, things are a little bit different and which is probably where yoga sits, I guess, tailoring it to the needs of the Australian setting. And I guess in the future, our hope is that we'll be able to collaborate more with other groups, uh, which is a little bit more tricky at the moment. But I think when uh, Jess and I joined the team, that was sort of what we were hoping for when we uh, went overseas for conferences but it hasn't really, uh, well, we haven't had that opportunity at the moment. That's because you haven't been overseas, right? A conference is not because when you went, there was nothing there to do. Okay. Exactly. And networking's a bit hard over, over Zoom. <laughs> it, it's not as fun as over a beer, huh? Yeah, um, that's right. But you are catering for quite a diverse group of people. I would think it's a time in the career where certainly there can be major differences between men and women due to the age at which women, you know, have a family. Your members must be in many different positions. What's the landscape like out there in the first five years? For Jess and I and yoga committee at the moment, it's quite important for us that we address the diversity of the uh, the diverse group of people that are young oncologists. So part of that is gender, but also uh, one of the things that we are noticing a lot is that in often these kind of committees or groups, uh, the New South Wales and Victoria are quite well represented, but less the rest of the states and territories are not so well represented. One thing that always worries me, and you're both doing PhDs, do you have consultant roles or are you still fellows? I have a consultant role, but obviously not in the traditional uh, medical oncology space. And I work as a medical oncologist as a consultant in a trials unit, but addressing what you're getting at there, I have also had 
multiple fellow roles in the lead up to this whilst doing a PhD. We employ our PhD students as consultants, not as fellows, but I've noticed particularly in Melbourne, people are fellows for a very long time because they're pursuing PhDs. And I think that really robs you of a lot of the early experiences as a consultant. What what do you think about That's right. that? And I think, though, it's a sort of a, it's a chicken and egg kind of argument in some way. So I'm doing a PhD, and I, the reason I did cancer genetics is because I absolutely did not want to do a PhD. I did not want to be um, pushed into feeling like I needed to do a PhD to get a job. And then somehow I circled back to PhD because I just was passionate about what I'm doing my PhD in at the moment. But I think a lot of trainees feel that they have to do a PhD. And so I'm not sure that they're doing the fellow job because they're doing a PhD. They're doing the fellow job because there uh, might not be uh, consultant opportunities that are available to them. And they feel that PhD is something that they need to do to be able to access that um, opportunity. I don't agree because if your institution where you're doing a PhD can offer you a fellowship, a fellow position, but not a consultant position, I think they shouldn't be offering you a PhD. I think it's sort of a forced labour. You've got the qualifications. You should be employed at the, at the level of your qualifications. I'm glad to hear that, Eva. I think um, this is something that Jess and I have spoken about in terms of the ethics of I think there's, you know, from an institutional point of view, there is a demand for service and the services require people to be there to provide that um, clinical service, whether it be trainees and or fellows, fellows who have finished their training, but uh, there isn't that commitment to long-term commitment to have a cons- having a consultant. Well, a pitch for anyone who wants to do a PhD and have a concurrent consultant, not fellow job, come and talk to me. I would encourage more heads of department to do that. I think that shows your commitment to the person and it shows that you recognise their qualifications. So maybe that's something you can uh, campaign for. But, you know, there are people like me who feel that that system is not a good system. There's a lot of sort of intimidation when you're still a fellow. You're very beholden to the person who is supervising your PhD. You're not sure if you'll get a job there in the end. Whereas I find that in my organisation, there's three or four people who are consultants and concurrently doing a PhD and they can operate on that equal level as to all the other people, they're doing equal work, they're making decisions as if they were the consultant. One of the things that uh, yoga tries to do is to make sure that we encourage and also represent diversity. And it's diversity not just in the geographical, gender, more traditional senses, but also diversity of pathways in oncology. And that's something that we try and help especially the more junior fellows to really see and so they can find the direction that they want to go go in as well it'll work best for them how do you do that Jess do you have a mentorship program is it formal is it informal because it's it's one thing to to say that you're doing it it's actually quite hard to do 
It is. And we've tried to make it as part of um, our meeting as well. So last year's um, two-day meeting on the second day, we had people who've gone through different pathways. The people that we have um, doing the practice interviews, we ensure they're coming from different areas of oncology. So you're more academic versus your trialist versus your more regional oncologist. What would they like? And just hearing from people who've taken different pathways as to what would be what, what are some of the options out there, apart from what you might see if you've just been mainly in a tertiary metro centre? Well, so. we are, Melita, pretty conservative overall, aren't we? I mean, the number of people who are practising in the hospital where they trained, maybe they've been overseas, but really not to any other experience and they've been there for a very long time, they stay in the job for a very long time, we pretty traditional approach, isn't it? So how do you break down those barriers and say to people it's okay to move around? I think it will happen by necessity. Certain places, you know, there are just no jobs and, you know, and you know that, you know, the trainee before you who just finished before you is still waiting. So there is that, you know, I think that will be a push. Um, one of the other things that we have been doing is that uh, speaking, I guess, to trainees as well. So I do do some talks with trainees, I guess, about dual training pathways and about uh, alternative pathways. Uh, I think part of that is adjusting expectations because I think when we train, we see our uh, senior consultants and, you know, the that was a different time and sort of their careers look different to what our careers will look like. There's a lot of hidden secrets. I mean, when I finish my training and I finish my PhD, I had to wait two years for a job. So I just had another child to fill the time. Don't don't tell her that. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, there, were, there were periods in the past where there was a great shortage of jobs. There were other people who uh, they were desperate. They'd go from registrar one day to consultant the next day because somebody, you know, died or retired or there was some scandal and they left. So that sort of thing hasn't changed. But of course, people want to be more secure now. I think there's a lot more pressure. I guess I don't really know this, but I suppose if I think about the number of trainees in Sydney that finish every year, you know, and there is a, there's always going to be a shortage. Well, maybe not, but there is a shortage, uh, workforce shortage in terms of the amount of demand um, and versus the amount of consultants that are working. But I guess I wonder whether whether there is really that much demand for all the trainees that are coming up and all the trainees that have finished in Sydney, whereas there are demands, you know, in the rural setting. So there might not be a job available. But, you know, from where I'm, I'm standing, I can tell that in this community that there is there is that demand and while there might not be the funding for that job to be created at the moment, there will be that job. Whereas I think if people think that they're going to work in Sydney and I guess I'm just not quite sure and maybe this is me being pessimistic that all of that, you know, that there is enough demand to recruit all of those people who have trained and who want to remain in Sydney. 
I'd encourage people to think about moving. I know that's hard to say, and especially if you've got a family, it's not always easy. But, you know, there is this tradition that you should only look at the place where you've trained or or the other shiny hospital nearby and, you know, you couldn't possibly move around. Everyone I know who's moved has found it invigorating and, you know, interesting. But it is a time of uncertainty for you, isn't it, in a time where you've probably got a lot more economic pressures than we had because of the very low wage growth compared to, say, housing. I left Sydney five years ago. We sold our house. If we want to go back from Melbourne, we will be living in a garage. You know, we just cannot afford anything back in the market. I, wish so you, I, I bet you wish that you didn't sell the place. <laughs> it's probably worth a mint now. Look, you know what? Yeah, you do what's right at the time. And one of the things as you get older is you realise there are things you can control and things you can't control. And my mantra is to try not to regret anything I do. Sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. But I think do what you want to do and try not to stress about the future and over plan. There is so much demand for oncology and oncology services. I think what we haven't got right, though, is the distribution of work and We've got a few people doing a lot of the work rather than the other way around. I think that particularly disadvantages women. Jess, is that a is that a, a fair comment from your perspective? I think it is. And so there's in particular, I think geographically, there's a huge um, difference in terms of the workload that you see depending on where you're geographically based as an oncologist. And it's hopefully the funding will match in the future for the areas that do need additional oncologists where you've got a higher patient load with particular complex uh, comorbidities as well and to assist in that situation because I don't feel that we've currently got that uh, equity at the moment. And hopefully with the MOGO workforce study that they're doing at the moment, that will address part of it. Another side of it is also from the young onks component. There is a significant amount of stress that all of this workforce discrepancy causes. And especially when you're looking at those in front of you, what's happened, what's gone on, how long do they have that unemployment or semi-employment period? It does cause distress amongst those in the years below. And it does contribute, particularly when you've got, you talk about burnout a lot, you talk about the additional stresses, you talk about the stresses of COVID, and then you've got this additional stress of, but I'm not even sure exactly where I'm going, how I'm going to find more stable employment. Looking at those above me, it does create that extra layer on top. Yeah, I remember being in that position, but I, you know, I do think the stresses were there and the process was perhaps not as transparent. It was a lot of jobs for the boys. And, you know, I went for a number of jobs that one of them, the person's cousin was on the interview panel and they got the job. I mean, you know, but on the other hand, I recognise that it is a major stress today because of just how many 
people there are, how many positions there are, all the politics, etc. It, it, you know, it, it was. I'm not trying to say that it was just as bad in our days, but it is something that people face. And again, comes back to my philosophy that you know, if people are doing research and you think that they are a, a, a academic person suitable for your research, then they should be an academic consultant suitable for your center. So you can try and see if uh, you can get more people to share that philosophy. So Melita, what other concerns do young oncologists have? I think that's that's the sort of the primary uh, thing that sort of when people come up, that's the main thing that people probably experience. But also, I guess, how to be the things that you learn, so the medical side of things, you know, how to manage all those kind of things. I think people have got that by the time, you know, they finish training. But it's all those other things that sort of, you know, the adulting or sort of, you know, working as a consultant, the sort of paperwork and all sorts of other sort of institutional things, you know, advocating for things, getting sort of, I guess, funding or getting things that, you know, getting the hospitals to support you or wherever you're working support you in some of your endeavours. All those things I think are not really things that we learn as much or we don't really get training in. So those are sort of things that I think are also challenging and I suppose where yoga tries to focus our attention on the sort of the professional development side of things. So whether that be public speaking or leadership skills or, you know, thinking about other ways of doing things. And just the, you know, the one thing that is definitely sort of better for you is this more talk of work-life balance. I don't know if you've got more work-life balance, but at least it's talked about a bit more. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's good that it's being recognized. You're right. At this, at this particular moment today, work-life balance for myself is not there. But the fact that people are considering it and it's crossing people's minds is really good. I've had the opportunity to work with people who have made sure that they don't work full-time, that they have part-time work instead so that they can have a work-life balance. This isn't a gender-based component. These are both male and female medical oncologists going, I want to see my family more often. I want to be involved in these different components and I want to get these other things done. So these people have actually actively gone out to ensure that their workplace is catered for that and ensure that they've got those hours available, which is great. So more role models there than possibly what we had. Melita, are you also a talker but not a doer of work-life balance? No, I I think I have actually quite a fair bit of work-life balance. Great. You know, a lot of that I've had to advocate for that myself, but I guess you learn, don't you, that you need to look after yourself. So, you know, I get better I think every year at maintaining or at improving work-life balance but yeah I working part-time and I do a full-time PhD but I decided sort of the second half of the year that actually the the demands of COVID and a few other challenges that 
work uh, out of our control means that actually the work-life balance wasn't there. And so I've uh, taken a little break from my PhD currently, which, you know, is not something that is commonly done. But, you know, I think it's important to look after yourself because when you're functioning, when you've got that right mental um, space, or uh, then you can actually do better. So, you know, the plan is next year. All those things are better under control. And, you know, we had a lot of pressure. It was a real race in my day, but we were all undergraduate medical students. So, you know, I was an intern at 21. I was a fully qualified oncologist at 29. You've got a different demographic now, particularly with the postgraduate medical training. How has that impacted on young oncology? I did undergraduate training, but it just meant that I had more time to start a family and you know work part-time during my training and I think medical oncology in general is actually really good in that that sort of is able to happen it's from a training point of view but I think you know if I can give you a bit of advice it is no race once you get to the end you're there for 40 years or 45 years or 35 years it doesn't really matter and I think that taking that time in my day I can only remember one person who had who was pregnant as a registrar, and that was sort of a quite an unusual thing. And Whereas it's uh, quite not, expected now, really, yeah. that you know you just have children while you're training. It's not unusual. Yeah, no, I think that, and that's across all the medical specialties and even surgeons now. So that's that's been a great thing to see. I can't think of anyone who did training part time in my era. So I think that's also another major advantage. One thing that where women were disadvantaged was this hopping off overseas. I guess that's my bee in my bonnet that I never got to go and live, you know, I got my PhD, and but I never got to go and live overseas and hang around in, in London with all the people at the Marsden and at the – is that an issue for, for the young oncologists? You know, these days, a um, lot of the female trainees or female young oncologists, uh, you know, they have been overseas with their children. And I think, again, I think it's probably uh, speaks to the change in society and the sort of the gender roles. You know, it's evolving over time. I think that's the point. Make it work for you. I'm going to change to something a little bit different. I mean, you guys are so lucky. We have a lot of effective treatments. We still have a lot of people that we can't help in oncology, but, you know, I wait, at least I'm in the era where we have some fantastic treatments for patients, people who retired, say, 10 years ago who really had 5-FU and, and that was about all, a bit of adriamycin. But it's a really exciting time to be in oncology. Does that come through in your in how your members feel? Absolutely. I think it's fantastic. I was just going to say that I remember hearing Professor Tatterson speak about the drugs he had available when he was, you know, a young, budding medical oncologist. No one wanted to do the job because, again, they just had five of you and there were no sort of symptom control kind of medications. So I think we are very lucky. And the travel now is keeping up with the, the latest 
you know, uh, medications and the uh, treatment options. That is true, though. I mean, particularly not only with the amount of information coming, but all of the various resources, so many of which are available, you could be overwhelmed. And of course, if you really want the best one, just listen to OJC podcast every week and you'll you'll be up with the latest. You know, even the uh, Oncology News Australia newsletter is fantastic. You could actually feel very overwhelmed that you haven't read every journal. I actually find Twitter is very good. Do Do you guys use Twitter? Use Twitter. Had to learn how to use Twitter. I'm warming up to it. I'd say that neither of us are particularly great at using Twitter and it's something that we've been trying to learn. But I definitely find that I learn things from Twitter, like lots of, you know, it's just nice to get a bite-sized summary that someone, you know, talks about a paper or they retweet a paper. I think it is a really good way of just getting that exposure. And then, you know, if it's something relevant, then you might look into it a bit more and read, actually go ahead and read the paper. Yeah, I'd encourage you to do that because you can tweet anything. You can make anything look good. And so that's one of the downsides. But then again, in the Twitterverse, people will keep you honest and say no. So, you know, the arguments about disease-free survival versus overall survival for adjuvant therapy and the fierce Twitter wars over this is a new gold standard, no, it isn't. So you do have those balances. What about the issue of how patients want to interact with their oncologist? To, you know, emails. We were fortunate. You had to ring the secretary and no one ever answered the phone so they could never get on to, to the oncologist. But now you're really accessible to patients and nurses and, you know, 24-7. And how does that accessibility and, and everyone knows where you are, how does that manifest in terms of people's just feeling overwhelmed and also privacy? So I use email to communicate with patients, but on my emails, I also have my times written down and my availabilities. And I tell people when they're sending emails that about, you know, duration of response, like what sort of a time period to expect a response to help manage that side of expectations and to go through it that way instead. I quite like email, to be honest, because you don't have to stop the current conversation you're having. You don't have to interrupt what you're currently doing. You can finish seeing the patient you're with, finish off that meeting, and especially if it's something where you just it needs a reply that day but not that second. Melita? Mm. I haven't been as good. Uh, well, actually, emails were breaking fine for me up until COVID hit. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, EMR, which is the great saviour, we think, to everything. Actually, the workload increase has been well documented, particularly in the US where there's a demand because of billing for documentation. But it's actually uh, really also impacted people will go home from the hospital, but then have a couple of hours of updating the EMR. Is, Is that of concern to young oncologists? Because we're too old to use them. The, the EMR. So. I like EMR. I absolutely do see the issue with going over time in terms of the day-to-day side of things. But from the clinical trial side of things and being able to adapt and to respond quite quickly to things and 
is I I enjoy it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. I think that with EMR, when you start off as a trainee, um, the sort of the level of detail in your notes, you know, is really high. And I think we spend a lot of time um, completing the um, the entry. And I think as uh, you become more senior, the entry sort of narrows down and becomes a bit more pertinent and sort of more sort of to the point. It's also checking results. People feel guilty. I'll just check and see what's happened to the patient and the results not through, so I'll go home and then I'll check it. Isn't that the sort of rabbit hole? Yes, absolutely. That is a rabbit hole and that is quite, yes, a dangerous path that we were just talking about this afternoon before this podcast of going down all these different directions. So yoga is there to try and help with these sort of contemporary issues and do you feel most people are engaged with yoga or is it only just uh, some of the young oncologists and other people don't want to have much to do with it? I think people in New South Wales and Victoria and and Canberra, I think they are quite um, well engaged. And actually, in more recent times, Western Australia, we've have uh, really had a lot more engagement from um, Western Australians, which is great. The other states, other and territories, I think. I don't know, Jess, what you think, but I think we could do better. And probably, you know, uh, some of that is the way that our what happens after people finish training. So some places they don't really have opportunities for young oncologists. So often they will go to somewhere else to do more, you know, lingering basically. So there may not be as many yogas uh, around in those places. So so shout out to yogas, especially in Tassie, NT, South Australia, Queensland, anyone interested, please follow the links from and get in touch because it sounds like it's a great organisation. We once did a, a debate when I was an intern at RPA against the consultants and it was in the Great Hall of Sid- Sydney Uni and we couldn't believe it. The hall was packed. There were over a 1,000 people came to hear the, the interns and residents debate the consultants and the topic was that we did it tough. So it was each side saying that they did it tougher than the others. It's not really like that, but it is fantastic that organisations like yours are born out of necessity, are there to help and mentor and deal with issues that come up. And I think it behoves all of us to engage and make sure that we're meeting the demands and we're helping in whatever way for the careers of young oncologists. So we have talked a lot about some of the challenges and some pretty serious concerns and issues and burdens of young oncologists. We've also talked about you being so fortunate as to being in the so-called golden age of oncology. There are a lot of upbeat things. We're attracting a lot of people into oncology now. Do you want to tell us about some of the celebrations, some of the great things from a young oncologist's point of view? Yes. So I work in clinical trials at the moment. So what I am celebrating and enjoying is the fact that I constantly get to see new 
ideas come through and the new side of different drugs that are being developed, which for me is exciting, it's invigorating, it's something that really makes it great to come to work. Another side that I really enjoy is I do a lot of teaching and there are so many people coming up that you get to be involved in teaching for who are medical students, junior medical officers or advanced trainees who are going to be absolutely fantastic. And there's some people where you just look at and you're just like, you're going to be amazing at the end. It's just making sure that they've got everything there in, in place to help transition across because we've got some great people through um, that are going to come through. And I'm just really hopeful that they can thrive and that we can help create an environment for them to thrive as in the chosen field. Yes. Look, I mean, I think you're doing that in spades. But Melita, what about the camaraderie? Are you, is there less competition than say back in my day when it was dog eat dog really? Is there more camaraderie, more camaraderie with allied health, more interdisciplinary discussion with pal care? You've got VAD. Is that a plus? Yeah, I think, I think actually we are doing oncology in a very exciting time. There's just, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening and there are a lot of things that are unknown, but we know that it's sort of on the horizon and which makes us very sort of, I guess, thirsty for that, you know, for to make that next discovery. So there's the sort of the clinical, the research um, side of things, but then, as you say, the collaboration, the sort of the opportunity to work with in a multidisciplinary setting, which I think wasn't probably as much a thing as when you were, you know, just starting out. So uh, there's that and there's the sort of the sense amongst the young oncologists that we do want the work-life balance. So I think the future of when we are senior medical oncologists, I think, you know, there'll be a lot more, we hope, work-life balance and the diversity in sort of the interests, you know, doing other things. So there are people who are interested in global oncology, there are people who are interested in research, in, you know, education, leadership, all the sort of different kind of opportunities that I feel like maybe in the past may, you know, may not have been as readily accessible. And also the world has become much smaller with the advent of internet and now with our, all our proficiency with Zoom where, you know, we can network with lots of people, uh, maybe not in a conference, but, you know, um, just by email or Twitter and all those kind of things, which I think just, it's just, there's just so much happening. It can be a bit overwhelming, but I think it's an exciting time to be a medical oncologist. All right. You've made me want to be young again, something I'll never be able to achieve, but uh, sounds pretty good from here. Once again, Jess Smith, Melita Zahid, on behalf of the Yoga Group, Young Oncologists Group of Australia, it's fantastic to hear from you and to hear about all your work. Keep it up and thank you for being on OJC. Bye for now. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.